God, that we do not have to put on any kind of front. We don't have to pretend. We come to Him just as we are. And we come to Him trusting and knowing that in Him, He has all that we need. Uh, He is sufficient. And so that's why we come to Him and to no one else first. And so very grateful for that reminder and that song. Thank you for that. If you uh, got a bulletin when you came in, uh, you will find the outline for the sermon inside there. A little introduction on the front and then the outline uh, is right inside with an application guide to guide you uh, through the week because we don't want to be people that just hear the Word. We want to be people that do the Word as well. And so uh, we trust that God's Word will change things. You notice maybe that the title of the sermon this morning is The Restoration roller coaster. I don't know. Summertime is a time when a lot of families go to some kind of amusement park and maybe ride a roller coaster. How many of you are fans? You'd say, I'm a fan of roller coasters. I enjoy. Okay. Yeah. So quite a number of people. There's some younger kids that are fans. I I was a little bit scared when I was a kid, um, but I did some of them anyway. And usually when I got done, I was really glad that I did. I didn't go to any big ones. Uh, my family didn't go on a lot of trips, but I did get to be, because I was in the marching band, go on a lot of trips. And so on marching band trips, I rode on roller coasters at Valley Fair in Minneapolis and at uh, Disney World down in Orlando at some amusement park up in Winnipeg, Canada one time. And so I got to, at those places, ride some pretty wild roller coasters. And, and, and you know that when you ride a roller coaster, there's all sorts of different people. People react differently to the ride, the thrill ride of a roller coaster. You've got, like, tough guys who, like, try and pretend like it's not a big deal. You know, it's like they're just sitting on their recliner in their living room, and, and they're, like, they, they don't have any expression. Then you have some people that, for them, this is just exhilarating, right? And they are screaming like little girls, even if they're guys, and they're, they got their hands in the air, and they're all excited. And then for other people, they're quite sure that they might not make it out of this alive. Like that funnel cake that they wanted, they might not ever get to eat that because this, this, this roller coaster might just be the end of them. And so they, every time that there's a quick turn or a big dip or something like that, they're screaming as though their life is going to end. And you wonder, like, did you not know this was coming? You got on a roller coaster, right? Now, I have never personally been afraid for my life on a roller coaster except for one. And you might think it was one of those I was on at one of those big places, but no, it was on a roller coaster right here in the state of Iowa at a place called Arnold's Park. You been there? You been on that roller coaster? What a nightmare. Um, that, that, That roller coaster was built in 1927. It's the 13th oldest roller coaster, wooden roller coaster in the world. And you can tell, my dad's company had their annual company picnic down there. And so we would come down every year for a few years in a row. And, and even my very young, very flexible body, like my, my neck and my head and my shoulders would say to me after that roller coaster ride, why, Jeremy, why? Why do you do that? Like it just hurt. It was not smooth. Nobody would describe that roller coaster ride as pleasant. Nobody would get done and say, well, that was nice. Um, you get done like, oh, I'm glad that's done, kind of like trying to move your body again. As you read through the history of God's people in the Old Testament, it reads oftentimes like a roller coaster, and many times as you read it, it's not pleasant. 
Today is going to be one of those times. We've been working our way through the Old Testament book of 2 Chronicles. So if you have your Bible with you, you can open up to 2 Chronicles. We started this series at the beginning of King Hezekiah's reign in 2 Chronicles 29. The roller coaster climbed to great heights under his leadership as God's people experienced a great deal of restoration. And it was all looking really good most of the time. Hezekiah was one who was called good and right and faithful. He was a good king. And a lot of restoration came under his reign. But we could maybe see a plunge coming in this roller coaster ride last week as we got to the end of chapter 32. And at the end of chapter 32, we started to see pride swelling up inside of Hezekiah that came out in a number of ways. And as a result, God's wrath was upon them. But God ended up being merciful to him. But God's wrath was not totally removed. It was just withheld for a period of time. You remember the, the horrible selfishness, really, of King Hezekiah as, as we look back at the account in Second Kings. And we saw that, that though Isaiah the prophet came to Hezekiah and said to him, Hey, listen, you're going to be fine, but it's not going to go well for your kids and those after you. And you don't remember his response? He was like, well, good, as long as it's not going to happen in my day. Horrible, horrible parent, right? Um, So we saw kind of the plunge start to take place. And now today, what we're going to see, we're going to be in 2 Chronicles chapter 33. And we are going to see a horrible downward spiral of sin and evil. Most of the times when you ride a roller coaster, you end up at the same place you started. But today we're starting in the roller coaster ride up here, and we are going to end somewhere down in a dark pit. And it's going to feel like there's not a lot of hope. So we're going to actually, because I don't want to end that way, we're going to turn to the book of John uh, and, and look at the hope that we have in Christ and have that lead us into our time of communion this morning. So that's the plan. We're going to be in Second Chronicles chapter 33. And as is our custom, if you would please stand if you're able as we read God's Word this morning. Second Chronicles chapter 33, God's Word says this, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that his father Hezekiah had broken down, and he erected altars to the Baals, and he made Asheroth, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And he used fortune-telling and omens and sorcery and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of the idol that he had made, he set in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will no more remove the foot of Israel from the land that I appointed for your fathers, if only they will be careful to do all that I have commanded them, all the law, the statutes, and the rules given through Moses. Now Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Now the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, 
but they paid no attention. Therefore the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria, who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. Afterward, he built an outer wall for the city of David west of Gihon in the valley and for the entrance into the fish gate and carried it around Ophel and raised it to a very great height. He also put commanders of the army in all the fortified cities of Judah. And he took away the foreign gods and the idol from the house of the Lord and all the altars that he had built on the mountain of the house of the Lord and in Jerusalem. And he threw them outside of the city. He also restored the altar of the Lord and offered on it sacrifices of peace offerings and of thanksgiving. And he commanded Judah to serve the Lord, the God of Israel. Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. Now the rest of the acts of Manasseh and his prayer to his God and the words of the seers who spoke to him in the name of the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, they are in the chronicles of the kings of Israel. And his prayer, and how God was moved by his entreaty, and all his sin, and his faithlessness, and the sites on which he built high places, and set up the Asherim, and the images, before he humbled himself, behold, they are written in the chronicles of the seers. So Manasseh slept with his fathers, and they buried him in his house, and and Ammon, his son, reigned in his place. Ammon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Ammon incurred guilt more and more, and his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Ammon, and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. You can be seated. So, first thing we see in this passage is a downward spiral of sin and evil. This is the summary. Did you see the summary? Did you hear the summary of King Manasseh's life? Remember, one of the summaries of Hezekiah's life, even though he was sinful, the overall summary of his life is that he did what was good and right and faithful in the eyes of the Lord. But now his son Manasseh comes after him, and he reigns, and the summary of his life is not so rosy. In verses 1 and 2, you heard a bit of it. It says, he was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. And then verse 9 Not only did he do that himself, verse 9 says, He led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. Manasseh's summary of his life is that it was characterized by sin and evil. That was his life. Just to give you a little historical context, this is happening about right at the beginning of the 600s B.C. So most people date his reign from 697 to 642. Now, you notice that he started reigning at age 12. Um, Probably the first 10 years of his reign overlapped with his dad. So he and his dad were kind of doing a co-regency thing for the first 10 years of his reign. And then we get this 
this horrible report that God's people, remember God had intended that his people would be a light to the Gentile nations. He wanted to raise his people up that they might be a holy people to be a light to the nations. But the problem was under Manasseh's reign, they weren't a light to the nations. In fact, they were doing everything just like the rest of the nations and sometimes doing things even worse than everybody else. So you've got like God's people over here and everybody else over here. God's people are supposed to be a light to these people, but instead God's people are doing the exact same things that everybody else is doing. This is not good. And so we see that. One of the ways that we see it here in in Manasseh's reign is that in verses 3 to 5, and then again in 7 to 8, we see him building up altars that his dad had torn down. We see idolatry all over the place. So his dad had done this work of restoration saying, listen, we can't worship false gods. So he tore down and destroyed altars, destroyed them. Manasseh comes, he's like, hey, what happened to all those altars? And he builds them right back up again. He has the nerve even to begin building altars to worship false gods in the temple of God himself. Okay? So, we see a lot of sin, especially the sin of idolatry. What started probably in his life is just a little bit of experimenting with sin. That's usually how sin works, right? We just kind of dabble in it a little bit. And before we know, it's taken us further down than we ever thought we would go. And that has to be the case for Manasseh. Did you see verse 6? Did you hear when I read verse 6? Look at verse 6. 2 Chronicles 33 verse 6 says this. It talks. Let's look at the end first. He used fortune telling and omens and sorcery, dealt with mediums and necromancers, did much evil in the sight of the Lord. So he is dabbling in the occult, right? The spiritual forces of evil that exist in our world, he was trying to tap into that. And there is great power there. And so the fact that he was even playing around with it, a very scary kind of thing. There, is, there are powers of darkness that exist in the world, and we ought ne- never to even play around, toy around with them in any way. But he was doing a lot of that. But did you see the despicable thing that happens at the beginning of verse 6? Did you see that? You want to know what evil looks like? It looks like this, verse 6. And he burned his sons as an offering in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Burned his sons. Now, like, when it's talking about, like, I got a little burn yesterday. I was grilling. We had some people over at our house, and, and they saw me be a little baby. I had to have, like, an ice cube on my hand all night because um, I burned my hand a little bit while I was grilling. That's one little spot like this. That's not the kind of burning that he's talking about here. Your translation might translate it differently than that. It's really a phrase that doesn't show up many places, thankfully, in the Old Testament or even outside the Bible, because thankfully it, didn't, it wasn't referred to that many times. But when this phrase shows up, it's an ugly, an ugly, ugly kind of thing. More than likely what it's referring to is the fact that Manasseh practiced child sacrifice. Your version might say he passed his sons through the fire. That's the most literal translation of it, that he passed his sons through the fire. Um, but, but people that study language at this time would say that that most likely refers to the fact that he was practicing child sacrifice. Talk about a dy- downward spiral. 
You've got the life of Hezekiah characterized by being good and right and faithful. A lot of restoration amongst God's people. And in one generation, the spiral downward is steep. Man is certainly sinful and evil and deserving of God's judgment and wrath. But then we see the roller coaster ride take some unexpected twists and turns. Kind of interesting, if you read through uh, the, the king's version of, of the life of King Manasseh, they don't really share anything positive at all. Now he lived, this was, this was a, a record reign. There, there's nobody that reigned longer in Judah than King Manasseh, 55 years. That's a long time. But, but Second Kings will let you know that he was probably the most evil king in the history of Judah. Now, now, just because we have two different counts doesn't mean they disagree. In, in a life of 55 years, they're, they're summarizing one man's life of 55 years of reigning. They're summarizing that in one chapter. And so Second Kings focuses on his evil. But the chronicler does focus a bit on some twists and turns that maybe make you feel like there's a little bit of hope. That maybe this guy's not all totally evil. That, that there's some twists and turns and some looking up in this roller coaster ride that we're going on. And we see that in verses 10 to 17. I'm not going to read through 10 to 17 again, but just so you get a picture of a little bit of hope here. What happens is in verse 10, God speaks. So you're like, oh good, God is not, God has not totally just distanced himself from these people. He continues to speak to them. Even the hard-hearted, rebellious people, God continues to speak to them. But it says they paid no attention to him. It says then in verse 11 that God sends judgment. The Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria. And they gather up Manasseh, binding him. They get him with hooks. And then they bind him in bronze chains. Right? So he experiences God's judgment. And then and only then does Manasseh finally humble himself and turn toward God. God shows him mercy in verse 13. Manasseh then knows that the Lord is God, and he actually does a little bit of restoration. We read about that in verses 14 to 16. He actually is doing some restoration. So we're kind of thinking maybe things will yet turn around. But he's led the people down a pretty dark path, and so we read in verse 17, Nevertheless, the people still sacrificed at the high places, but only to the Lord their God. He had introduced them to all sorts of sin and evil and idolatry, And even though he had a a brief moment of a change of heart, he had already led the people somewhere else, and now they're going to just do what they were used to doing. God was merciful. Last week we saw God's mercy highlighted in Hezekiah's life. Now we see it even more in Manasseh's life. We wonder, how could God be merciful to this man, practicing this kind of evil, engaging in child sacrifice, yet God, when he, when, when he humbles himself before God, God is merciful towards him. If you look back just a little bit in Second Chronicles chapter 7, God had made a promise. People, a lot of people have uh, used this one or heard this one before. In Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14, God had said this, And he keeps his promises. He says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. God was fulfilling his promise as Manasseh's heart was humbled. Took some pretty significant distress for him to get there. One point of application before we move on 
is that this. I want you to look at verse 12. Verse 12 says this. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord his God and humbled himself before him. We see that happening in our world, don't we? That that, that a lot of people who don't really know, don't seem to know or love or worship Jesus, that in a time of distress, all of a sudden they now want God to be there. Right? And maybe, maybe you're like that. Maybe, maybe you've kind of coasted through life feeling like, I got this under control. But then in a moment of despair, in a moment of great distress, when you're looking at things and saying, I don't know how to handle this anymore, that, that in that moment of distress, we all of a sudden turn to God. I think this is really the way that we do things in our culture quite often. There were studies done on the lives of teenagers and young adults a few years back. And they revealed that our culture is increasingly filling up with people probably much like Manasseh. The researchers coined a phrase that they say, this is what young people in America believe today. And they coined this phrase, they call it moralistic therapeutic deism. There's five main tenets to that. Here's what they are. See if you think this is an accurate description. Here's what it is. One, there is a God who exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Most people still believe that. They also believe that God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other, as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions, right? The central goal of life is to be happy and to feel good about yourself. Then the fourth one, God does not need to be particularly involved in someone's life, except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And then fifth, good people go to heaven when they die. Okay, so those are five things that we have, we have we, we, you know, in, in some, some kind of extensive studies done, done amongst young people in our culture. That's what people have said, that this is kind of the functional religion of young people in our culture today. And follow-up studies, by the way, um, so we're not just kind of pointing at young people. Follow-up studies found out that they learned this from their parents. Um, imagine that. Um, and so... I think Manasseh, maybe unfortunately a bit ahead of his time, kind of had a little bit of this type of religion where he really didn't need God. He, he probably knew that there was a God, but he didn't really have much need for him as he went through his life until things got really bad. He's get, he gets taken away by a hook. I don't even know what that looks like, but that sounds scary. And then he's bound with bronze chains. And at that moment, he finally says, okay, I think I need you, God. And I'm so grateful that he did. But hopefully for us, it doesn't take a moment of great distress like that. Hopefully we realize as a church, as individuals, that we are desperately in need of God's mercy every moment of every day. That we can't just kind of coast through life until something really bad happens and then decide, well, now I'm going to turn to him. Do we realize that there is a spiritual battle raging around us and one of the greatest tactics of the enemy is to lull us into thinking there's not really a battle going on? Do we realize that the little sins in our life, the ones that maybe aren't a big deal, the ones that probably won't even get caught at, the ones that probably other people wouldn't even care about if we did get caught, that those little sins can begin to take us on a downward spiral that leads to more and more sin and take us to a place we never thought we'd go? Because we're in this really, really real battle, I hope that we might be a church that throws off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. We need to come together regularly to our God in desperate prayer. 
as we look at the darkness that surrounds us. Look, look at all the darkness surrounding Manasseh and his people. And we look around our world. We look around our own hearts sometimes. We look around our families and we just see darkness. It seems like darkness keeps just kind of encroaching in. We just feel this constant cloud over us. We need to be desperately in prayer together. Because we know that we're running around behind enemy lines wearing a blaze orange jacket with a target on the back. We need God every moment of every day, not just when we're in distress. But then you see how it ends. See how it ends here. You got another summary of Manasseh's life. And the summary does talk a little bit about his prayer and his humility. But it also says in verse 19, In all of his sin and his faithlessness and the sites on which he built high places and set up Asherim and the images. Okay? So the summary of his life has a lot to do with his sin and with his faithlessness. His legacy is pretty tainted and you wonder, but God, yet God showed mercy. God didn't bring judgment right away on that. Like why would God show mercy on someone as evil as Manasseh? A man practicing child sacrifice and God shows mercy on him? Why? How? Well, in the book of 2 Timothy, Chapter 1, verse 15, or maybe it's 1 Timothy, I can't remember. 1 Timothy, I think it is. Yeah, 1 Timothy. Paul says, God chose to show his mercy to me, the chief or the foremost of all sinners. And why did God do that? So that he might display his great patience. God wants us to know that he is patient. So, so, so God saves horrible sinners because he wants us to know that he is patient. God wants us to know that he's patient, and so he even showed mercy to a man like Manasseh. That's his character. And unfortunately, we have this son who follows in his dad's footsteps. Verses 21 to 25 tell us about Ammon. Verse 22 says this, And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. Ammon sacrificed to all the images that his father had made and served them. Okay, one thing that you might notice, might not have noticed is that in verses 14 to 16, when Manasseh repented, he didn't do like his dad did. Hezekiah, remember, he saw all these altars to false gods. He destroyed them. When Manasseh repented, he just like, hey, we're going to put these in storage outside of the city somewhere. Not a good idea, right? So he was not coming up against sin very strong. He was kind of like, well, maybe that's not right. So let's just, let's just set this sin aside for a little bit. So he removed those things out of the city. But that allowed his son Ammon to come right after him and say, let's move that stuff back in. Let's get that started again. He didn't destroy the sinful practices. He just kind of set them aside for a time. There's a difference. And so we see, unfortunately, his son following in his footsteps, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. And it seems that our roller coaster ride has ended in the bottom of a dark pit. And there's going to be temporary hope next week as we see just right at the last verses and the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. There's some hope. Come back next week for that, but I don't want to wait for that because as we turn to communion here in a little bit, I don't want to leave us in a dark pit. I want to point us to the hope that we have in Christ. Perhaps you look at your life. You're looking at your life right now and you're seeing your own sinful choices, the sin of others, just life in general has gotten you to a point where you feel like you are in a dark pit. 
and you're wondering, in the midst of that dark pit, is there any light? Is there a way out of this dark pit that I find myself in? Maybe it's not just so personal, but maybe it's just you look at the world around you. Maybe you've lived a number of years and you're looking back and you're like, I don't know how people are supposed to survive. I've got kids. I've got grandkids. I don't know how they're going to do it in this world. I'm looking, at, I'm looking at this dark world around us and I'm wondering how they're going to survive. Is there any hope for the darkness that seems to be encroaching on us? So we wonder about that. We long for revival and restoration to come. But I'm going to end the sermon then by pointing us to the only light that can penetrate the darkness and make it flee, and that is Jesus. You see, during this time, it was actually just a bit before his time, it was during the time of Hezekiah that Isaiah the prophet was prophesying. And Isaiah the prophet had prophesied this. You can read it in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. Isaiah said, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah was trying to tell the people in the midst of all that darkness, he was saying, listen, there is a time coming when a great light will shine. In the midst of all the darkness, a great light will come to shine. And in Matthew chapter 4, Matthew quotes that passage in Isaiah saying this is about Jesus. As Jesus comes into the world, he comes into the world as the light. You want to look for hope in the midst of darkness? You must look to the light of Jesus Christ. Go ahead and turn with me. We're just going to read. I'm not going to have many comments, but I want you to hear God's word to give us hope from John chapter 1. John chapter 1, there's short verses in verses 1 to 14 say this. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through Him. Without Him was not anything made that was made. Now listen to this. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Now there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness, to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through Him. He was not the light, but He came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, some would come to believe in Jesus, and some would not. Those who believe in Jesus, those who receive Him, are given the right to be called and become children of God. The problem, though, is for many, they prefer to stay in the darkness. That's what it says in John three nineteen. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. But the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. If you're feeling uh, like you're living in a pit of darkness or in the midst of a people of great darkness, find hope in John 8.12. John 8.12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 12.46, I've come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me 
may not remain in darkness. That's our hope. Our hope is that in the end, Jesus wins. We hear so many stories. If you turn on the news, if you read anything, if you look at even stuff going on all around you, it can be so easy to become overwhelmed by the darkness. But we need to hear more stories of the light of Jesus penetrating dark places. So I'm going to tell you one story to close. This is a story about what one of the missionaries that we support um, is Rich Turcha. Rich is a former pastor from this church, and he and his family moved to the Czech Republic to be involved in church planting throughout that region. Now, it's been our privilege to partner with them for a number of years. So, um, so they're actually the missionaries that we give most of our support to. Uh, we give them more financial support than any of the other missionaries that we support. We're grateful for the work that they're doing in that place. The Czech Republic is in Central Europe, and on the outside, it can look like a great place. A lot of you have been on short-term mission trips to Haiti, and you've seen ugly poverty and, and all sorts of economic ruin and things like that. If you went to the Czech Republic, you wouldn't see that. It's really uh, pretty low poverty rates, high levels of education and literacy, one of the most developed countries in Central Europe. On the outside, it looks pretty good, but spiritually, it's a dark place. Less than 2% Less than 2% of the population of that entire nation are born-again believers. With most of the people not even just being kind of complacent, they're just, they're just totally opposed to any kind of religion. They just, they just have, want to have nothing to do with hearing about any God. So how are you supposed to reach a culture of darkness like that? I mean, we, we, we maybe feel a little bit of darkness here. But, but how do you live for years in that culture trying to do the work of the gospel and not get discouraged? How do you do that? Well, I asked Rich to tell me that. And the answer really is, well, it's the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, one person at a time. And here's a story from Rich. Sometimes God shows his might in lightning fast circumstances, but sometimes he demonstrates his long-lasting love over a period of time. With Martin, it was like the latter. Martin began attending our church plants weekly English clubs and week-long English camps about six years ago. Martin grew up in a home with both parents present, but had absolutely no exposure to Christianity whatsoever. His mother, being a school teacher, was very suspicious of our church group at the beginning, but since Martin was a teenager, she decided that he could do what he wanted. So Martin kept attending the weekly English club meetings in which he was often involved in conversations about forgiveness, sin, evil, the existence of God, goodness, beauty, love, and sacrifice. Martin was not one to keep his opinions to himself. So he was often asking questions about why we believed in God. How could God allow such horrible things to happen to innocent children in the world? And what was, what was so important about Jesus? But about two years ago, Martin began to believe that there was a God. But the stuff about Jesus as Savior was still beyond his understanding. So this is four years into working with him, right? Why would God demand death for sin, sacrifice with blood? Why would God hold against a person who wanted to believe in him? These were some hard questions that he wanted to solve. A key event for Martin was one year ago at an English camp when he wanted to help with leading. Pavel, the church planting pastor, explained to him our desire to have people leading the camp who were followers of Jesus. Martin didn't understand this. Since he already believed in God, he wanted to come, but he had to come to camp as an attender. During the past year, Martin began reading books with Pavel written by Tim Keller, which had been translated into Czech. 
These wonderful books help Martin to see the centrality of Jesus within God's plan for man being able to become into a relationship with God. During the year, God answered Martin's questions about how Jesus fit into the plan for Martin to come into a relationship with him. And during preparation for English camp last month, Martin again asked about being able to help with the camp in the role of camp doctor. See, in the Czech Republic, by law, every camp needs to have one person who's gone through basic emergency training to be responsible for health care at the camp. Well, Martin explained to Pavel that he was no longer just a believer in God, but he had decided to become a follower of Jesus. Martin's a Christian now. He met Jesus personally. During the past months since having welcomed Jesus into his life, Martin became more convinced of Jesus' desire to lead in every area of his life, including what he was studying. And for this reason, he changed his major to pre-medicine so he can help people with the gifts that he believes Jesus has given him in order to serve others. In the last year, not only had Martin moved from believing in a God, but he met Jesus in such a way that he wanted to give authority to Jesus, his Lord, over every area of his life. At this year's camp in July, during one of the team devotional times, Martin shared from Scripture with our group his story about God's saving work in his life. There there are things that are happening. The gospel is advancing. The light of Jesus, there is hope. Even in the midst of what we would see as great darkness and seeming hopelessness, the gospel of Jesus continues to advance. So we are grateful that, that even though at the end of 2 Chronicles 33 it seems we're left in a pit of great darkness, that we know that Jesus is the light. And the light has come into the world. And some people prefer the darkness. And so they will, they will shield themselves from the light of Jesus Christ. But the light of Christ can per- penetrate into even the greatest darkness. And that gives us great hope to continue praying, to continue sharing the gospel, and to continue to just believe the gospel. We need to continue to believe. The gospel isn't something you believe one time and then that's it. The gospel is something we continue to believe. We need to continue to believe as we look at darkness in our own lives and all around us that Jesus really is the light. He really is the hope of the nations. 